and they contacted an American comic fan who was putting out books at the time in dominant American news fanzine, comic reader, would be me, uh, and said, can we please have the right to reprint some of the news from your magazine and our magazine? If they needed the right, but none of us knew what the hell the law was. And, uh, none of us were adults yet anyway. Um, the two guys doing comic media were Nick Landau and Richard Burton. Um, Nick went on to be one of the founders of both Forbidden Planet, the retail chain, and Titan Distributors, the principal British distributor of comics for many years before it sold out to Diamond, and uh, Titan Books, which is the main publisher. Both Nick and Richard, prior to Nick founding those businesses, served as assistant editors um, on 2018. Um, they were both, Richard was a robot sidekick for far for a bunch of years. But the relationship that we built off that material was really one of the first connections between American and British fandom turning professional. So prior to 2000 AD being out there, um, I was starting to see Tornado, um, whatever the guys were starting to work on in the early stages of their career. And we were beginning to develop a connection between them. Um, in 79, the Science Fiction Worldcon was held in Brighton, England, and it was held about a week after one of the early British comic conventions. I forget whether it was in Manchester. Manchester. Yeah. Um, and a bunch of us went over. Um, so you had Wendy, Mark Wolfman, myself, uh, Joe Staten, and his wife Hillary were spending that entire summer in England. Uh, Hillary was a school teacher in those years. Joe was drawing comics for DC. Joe, because he was spending time out there, still needed those freelance assignments and needed a place to work. And through these web of contacts, he got hooked up with a young British artist named Brian Bowden. He spent that summer working with Brian's <coughs> studio. That's how Brian got to do his first coverage for DC. It was through Joe connecting with Jack Harris, who was at Gabriel Lantern, I think, at the time. And that trip created a lot of the acquaintanceships that became the first steps towards the British invasion. Was it, was it a case of um, them staying here in the UK? And because I understand there's a lot of mailing backwards and forwards. Oh, yeah, nobody, nobody came. No. Uh, no. Uh, everything was sent by whatever the primitive book of FedEx was. Um, please, Lord, let it get here and yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So let's um, talk about that um, time then, uh, David, um, when it came to um, what was the tone of the British comics and the uh, tone of that time. Because, uh, um, like I was um, talking to you about, like to say, yeah, let's go further back. Was it um, still very much a dark tone or very um, boys' own mag? Uh, kind of, uh, uh, no, uh, British comics have moved down to the West End mode very, very greatly. The uh, around about the time that Paul was talking about, um, this, in 2008 was the revolution in, in British comics. Um, there was, I mean, the people like Pat Mills. Um, Great writers, I mean, uh, were really taking risks with uh, with comics 
um, for the comics. And it happened because the, the publisher, the publishers were letting them have their heads. 2008 happened by accident, really. I mean, they were just, uh, the, you know, the, the British publishers, and this is one of the things to bear in mind about the reason why um, all the British came over to America. British publishers, British comic publishers, had no faith in the creative, in the fact that the font could be mature um, and uh, edgy kind of medium creatively developed. They were not interested in that. And in fact, that, that lasted right until the 80s and beyond, which is why everybody came to work with DC. You know, people who were really interested in the, in the creative evolution of, uh, of, of comics. Um, but because those British publishers were so apathetic about the, me the, the medium and the product, uh, their editors were given their heads, and they took, they took the chance to do whatever they wanted to. So you had some really edgy stuff, like uh, a comic called Action, which was you know, incredibly violent and gory um, in that kind of um, healthy, cheerful, strong, <laughs> 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 old um, sort of manner that kids love, that teenagers love. And uh, that was, uh, but the big, uh, big turning point was 2008. Which, appropriately uh, enough, came out, uh, was released the same year, it was published the same year as Star Wars, 1977. So it's a seminal year in many ways. Um, Back when 2080 felt like such a long, long way away. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was Steve McManus, who was the original editor around 2080, wasn't it? I think so, yeah, that's right. Um, much un uh, under celebrated names in history. Yeah, the wrong sort of pioneers, yeah. Um, but that was, uh, but so the book was dark, right? It was, you know, uh, it was, it was dark and cynical and very political, even then. Um, you know, Judge Dredd was, well, Judge Dredd is sort of like a fascist in, a fascist of the future. Um, basically, kind of Clint Eastwood style, sort of like Dirty Harry of Mega City, and that's, you know, that's, it's important to remember, just something else to just add to 2008, and also the creators at the time. My generation, uh, Dave Gibbons, you know, Brian Harland, uh, all that crowd, we were heavily influenced by American television and American comics. Uh, completely different from the generation that, that was before us, which was kind of an old-fashioned uh, comic book artist crew. We were very heavily influenced by American movies and American comics, and that, I mean, it was blended into the English, uh, British um, uh, sensibility. Sensibility, that's the word. And also, uh, the, also the, the particular structure of how the stories were told made a difference, because you were still doing almost all four and five page weekly segments of stories, which is totally unlike anything we ever did in America. Yeah. So that necessitated a kind of fast paced and choppy approach to it, which was a very different style of writing. Absolutely. It was a split panel concept. Yeah, but serious. And it was every kind of weekly. I was just about to say, 2008, weekly comedy was certainly churning out and sort of to get the work on the page, it was certainly a, a hotbed of uh, talent at that time. So, in this particular love affair, I mean, who made the first move forward? I mean, was it? Were you? Did you actually come over looking for talent, or were you basically just attending the UK conference to? Uh, oh, the UK conference. Yeah. We were there. Yeah, yeah. That, that wasn't expensive or anything like that. That was <laughs> just, you know, I had as much fun 
get to visit Arundel Castle, the, the, the Royal Pavilion in Brighton, as, uh, as I had to do anything that was up in business. But, you know, we got to meet these people, and they were nice, and some of them were really talented. And Brian, in particular, drew in a style that was very, very American influenced, and very, and at the same time, very cutting edge for what America was at that time. Um, so that was kind of an easy connection between him and I think particularly Len, who was uh, uh, editing at that time. So was it a case of then Brian introducing you to these, uh, the other names that said? Well, it, we went through several stages. I mean, the first was sort of one connection leading to another, as you, as you say. Part of it was came when people would pop up looking for work. And one of the most vivid memories I have is coming back to my apartment in Greenwich Village, opening the mail one day to a letter. Um, Hi, you don't know who I am, but I'm the best comics writer in England, and I'm writing you because I think uh, you're one of the better comic book writers in America, and if you ever need anybody to write the Martian Manhunter, you know I'd be I'd be happy to do that. Signed, Alan Moore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for his name to come up at some point. It was a little longer than that. Alan, uh, <laughs> about 18 pages. <laughs> <laughs> I remember it was maybe a page back in the process. Alan had written up until that point. I think the only thing he had out in 2008 was a strip skids, which would not necessarily be evidence of the Alan Moore, the genius who we have come to know and adore and respect. It was a kind of nice E.T.-ish kind of knockoff. Better written probably than most of what I've ever done in my career. But it's not nearly as well written as Alan Moore. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does. I mean, uh, his work certainly casts uh, a significant shadow. Uh, not only uh, to this day, uh, but in terms yeah. of sales numbers, in terms of what uh, well, he uh, talking about Watchmen here in particular, in particular, but certainly in the way that um, Alan works. Um, I mean, Karen, I think this is where I bring you on this one. I mean, whether you admit it or not, you are producing something in the Wicked Divine which aspires to that level of literacy of uh, Watchmen and of Alan's work. How important was Watchmen to you as a young reader? I like to think that we rip off Watchmen. That's <laughs> <laughs> a big fan of the word. I prefer ripping off the inspired because ripping off is um, uh, a good. Uh, speaks to the disrespect, I think, of a lot of the material I like to have. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know I, I quite like saying ripped off from inspired, there's less I like to say. Um, but no, what comes to all us. I mean, the weird thing for me, of course, I'm um, like someone who's on this panel because I was informed by this. Yes. I tried to influence a lot of this and hearing it. And I came to comics really late. You know, I came to comics in 97 in terms of being really into comics. Actually, that's a lie. I came to, uh, I got to comics pop in 2000. I got to Alan Moore in 97. And then here, of course, there was no comic shop where I was from in Stafford. So the American books were like very alien. So I, yeah. like, I was reading my stuff like Battle and uh, like this in 2018. Um, I like some stuff I, I pick up action a lot later. Um, but I was primarily aware of the
uh, I just finally had to basically a visa to work in America for a year. And I was basically waiting to let in. And I stuck, I went to Oxford Street, picked this coffee up, and basically read Washington the cover to cover in three hours uh, because I was waiting for the visa. And that was fundamentally one of those um, road to Damascus moments. <laughs> but I lived in America for a year, yeah. And the first month I did have a TV, I had a load of existentialist texts and watched them. I was too depressed to read all this existentialism. Uh, so I more than that, the least depressing option in my house. That was the way that the structure was, so I read it again and again and again. And every time you read Watchmen, I mean, there's a video of me online, I did a kind of speech about an hour, talking about Watchmen and structuralism and how it works. Sure. And I learned to why rip off from that. Uh, you know, that, was, that was it, it was that kind of that thing. I yeah. just really went into this as a literary and structural device. And that, you know, years down the line, I, as a basis of my thing, I tend to write to be reread, which I think is a lot of these mm -hmm. kind of, yeah. a lot of this material right. was, was written by that. Sure. So, but certainly, certainly Alan's in the mm -hmm. I mean, David, you worked with Alan on V for Vendetta. Uh, what was your and Alan's um, attitude to the American comic scene? And was, was there a sense of um, challenge, a sense of um, awe, perhaps? Uh, or was it a sense of uh, an intimidation, perhaps? What was your, what was the, your feeling about the, the market across the pond? Uh, well, uh, I can't really speak for Alan. I, um, Alan had a love affair with American comics, um, and he, he, he knew more about American comics than me. He knew all about you know, DC. Um, you know, he knew about all the editors. He, 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 was a, he really loved uh, what American comics represented. Um, for me, I mean, my, my attitude to American comics was at that time that we were doing V, um, the end of the 70s, and the, that I really thought that American comics were quite, uh, weren't really exploring as widely as they could. I mean, you know, just to Paul say that they were, you know, they had a limited sort of like creative uh, viewpoint. And um, when we did V, we wanted to really bust out and do something different, I mean, uh, so, which we did. Um, there was nothing like the um, around at the time, nothing like the uh, after it, really. Um, so my attitude was kind of different, but Alan was a great devotee of American comics, and as you, you see from that letter he wrote to Paul, he you know, didn't want to work for American comics, and he did successfully. You know, I mean, I think obviously, you know, his, his time on Swamp Thing, the ground, that was the, for me, that was like seminal moment. I mean, if, you, if you're looking for a, a, a point at which the British invasion happens, it's then. Um, it, it, it's, it's seminal for that, it's seminal for the degree to which it changed American comics attitude about what we could do ourselves. Um, now it took on subject matter that nobody had remotely dared to think about putting in American comics up until that time. And we had, we were at an interesting moment because the comic shops were growing at a good pace. They were becoming clearly the future of what our business was gonna be, which meant we were going to have an older reader, a more sophisticated one. But we didn't really have uh, a writing staff with a proven skill at reaching an older audience practice of doing that. And we certainly, we were, we talked, you talked earlier about 
both a cynical and political tone, um, the group of writers who were dominating American comics at that time were largely not political people, were largely not uh, vastly philosophical or literary. There were a couple guys, Steve Rivers, Don McGregor, who had literary ambition beyond what the media was capable of doing. And we had some wonderful writers of what would be uh, a great example of writing in the traditional material, but just writing really well. But what Alan was doing was just unrelated to what anybody had seen before. I think for myself, I mean, the, the, the groundbreaking moment uh, as a personal reader was that moment of seeing. Watchmen on the Times' uh, most influential books list, uh, on the uh, in, in the, uh, the the bestseller list, when it suddenly when it transcended comics and turned into literacy, you know, or turned into um, uh, uh, important uh, influential works. But Watchmen doesn't really do that for a long time. No, you know, it's it it's very when it comes out as a maxi series, it's very well regarded within. But it doesn't sell like Dark Knight. No. Its sales were low, just over 100,000, maybe 125,000 copies. Um, the Dark Knight was around probably 300, 350,000 copies um, at a much higher price point at about the same period. It doesn't sell anywhere near X Men, which is selling three, 400,000 copies every month at that point. Chris's work is vastly more commercial. Um, but in the same way that Contract with God a decade before had influenced creators, including Alan, to say, oh my God, this doesn't have to just be fish wrap. Um, <laughs> in British terms, it's, I guess it's chip wrap. It's um, not fish, fish and chip wrap. Fish and chip wrap. <laughs> um, we, don't wrap our, we don't wrap our chips that much. Uh, um, <laughs> you are so screwed around here, Karen. I'm so sorry. Not creative people. 
and not story content in the same fashion. He thought it was still in his business. And he was totally against the idea of a rating system and totally against what we were doing there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's fine if you want to publish something for an older audience, but don't make it look like a comic book. You know, so get it out of here. talk about some other influential uh, names of the invasion, such as uh, Grant Morrison, uh, Pete Milligan, uh, Neil Gaiman, who is at Comic-Con, and heaven knows I've tried to get him in the room, but obviously he's very busy promoting uh, his uh, adaptation of American Gods. God knows I've tried uh, to get him in the room. Uh, but was there a sense of this British talent um, writing for American publishers, kind of prodding the hornet's nest and uh, shaking things up, or was it intended to be more like a more civil union? Well, from the DC standpoint, we were the most aggressive company at that point, pursuing the British talent. We were trying to change the emphasis of wanting to take advantage of the, the growth of the direct market. Marvel had a much better market share than we had in those days, and we saw that as our engine to grow. Um, it was kind of looking at Alan and saying, are there any more at home like that? <laughs> um, and Jeanette and Dick took several trips a year for a while to England. And Karen Berger, who was a young, very new editor, I remember a couple of years before as my assistant, um, got as her responsibility, would you take care of this British stuff? Technically, <laughs> <laughs> the point of British liaison, it was, it was confusing, it was funny pound things that you had to pay, and, and it was difficult getting material back and forth. Apparently, the only way you could have a constructive conversation with the British creative talent was in the bar after um, <laughs> <laughs> seven p.m. Um, and it wasn't necessarily a conversation. It was effective, I'm told. And Jeanette was not a big drinker. Dick's drink of choice was uh, sweet Rob Roy straight up. Um, so Karen was sent to be able to manage this. <laughs> um, and she started coming back with all these people who were, at the beginning, hunting the artists much more than the writers. Yeah. Um, a lot of our older artists were starting to fade out of the business. So this was, okay, who's going to be the next Kurt Swan? Who's going to be the next third Novick? Starting to find it. But she kept coming back with these writers. This young kid, Grant Morrison, I remember the first poster we did with him. Fucking laugh on his head. Um, he was doing his own. He had in seven years, it was a party, it was time to make a fool of himself. Um, I, think that, can I, do, I need to add something to that. I mean, it's, you're, you're, you're right about the temptation factor, um, and the, uh, the, you know, the British writers did need a, uh, some seduction. But I just want to, you know, the important thing wouldn't sell ourselves for too much, uh, too little bread. Um, the thing is this, uh, I, I was lucky enough to be involved with sort of like hosting uh, Dick Lugano and Joe Orlando um, in one of their uh, trips to, um, to uh, Britain. Um, through, I was a chairman of something called the Society of Strip Illustration. And uh, we had these regular meetings, and Joe Orlando and Dick Orlando came along to one of those um, and spoke about what they wanted. Um, spoke about their needs for, uh, for, for artists and writers, 
they more seriously and appreciate what we were, what we were doing here. On top of that, um, the big moment though of getting everybody happily involved was something uh, that I should tell you about, which is the dinner at the Savoy. Now, I don't know how much any of you know about uh, uh, London hospitality, but the Savoy Hotel is one of the best in the world, if not in, uh, in London. And um, we were all invited, uh, by Karen and Dick and everyone, uh, to uh, a dinner at the Savoy. That involved uh, Jamie, me, Jamie Delano, uh, John Wagner, um, and a whole bunch of other people, uh, including myself. And at that time, you were lucky to get a pub lunch from the British publishers. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to add to what Paul's saying about, you know, treating, treating British time the way it, it should be deserved, it was that kind of seduction and that white seduction that spoke to us about their commitment to us. And that was very, very important because, you know, when you get something like that, you, you know, it, it's incredibly impressive. And it makes you realize there are people out there who really want you to, to work for them. And well, uh, from that point on, that's when I started working for DC. Um, uh, I did a series of short stories for Wasteland, which was one of those great anthologies that were being produced at the time by DC. So that was my first uh, entry point. Um, and so that was a really important moment. You know, you really need to believe that the company wants you. When, as I say, we had been neglected. Yeah. We had been treated badly by our British publishers. And you know, uh, this goes actually way back because one of the great British artists of all time who's no longer with us is called Don Lawrence. And Don Lawrence used to do this fantastic trip called the Trigon Empire for a magazine called Look and Learn, which goes way back. Uh, Don went to the publisher because he just needed the pay rise. He was doing incredible work. And he went to the publisher and said, but I just need the pay rise at home. And the publisher wouldn't give him um, along came a guy from Holland uh, who was producing uh, the magazine, I the name of what it was, but anyway, um, he was doing this character called Storm, and he said, well, could you come over and do this because we love your work? Don became so famous from doing that, working for this Dutch publisher, that when he died, they gave him a knight of the Orange Order. That's, that, that's a knighthood in Holland. See, and British publishers can go, who in hell? And, you know, the bottom line, that's why, you know, as well as our love of American comics, we're all, all mentors, because we're all brought up on this. Um, it was our, it was the complete negligence of the British comics publishers, which continued. Yeah. Um, well, and well, basically, just let me finish by saying that if you look at the British comics industry now, which it could have been, it could have been incredible if it had kept all those great times, but it didn't care. And you look at the British comics industry now, what have you got, 2008, that's it. 
basically. That's it. From a creative point of view, that's it. Well, that kind of leads on to the next question which I was going to ask. And I, I think there's one important thing uh, to grow in, and it's sort of implicitly you said what David was saying, but um, they just pay better as well. It's, you know, DC pay better than what he has. Yeah. And everyone's going to be dancing around that, but that's important to know. Actually, in constant dollars, we paid better, but I think it was the difference at that point between the dollar and the pound that made the shift. But what we did do is we had royalties inherent in it. Yeah. Very few people actually earned anything off royalties on the, the DC books at that point. They weren't selling that phenomenally. Um, but the potential was there. So certainly Brian on Camelot 3000, which, I mean, should be remembered, that was the first original direct only book that we did. He was the, art, the artist chosen for that groundbreaking title. First comic published in America with Lee. Not that it's sort of a, a detail in history now, but you know, Technology was changing radically, and we took advantage of it. Um, all of these things betoken what David was talking about in terms of the, the subtleties of respect. It was respect for the work. We're going to print your work better. We were shifting in America from printing that was about as shitty as the British printing. And the British material was almost all black and white and horrible news print. American comics for a long time had been very bad color on newsprint. We were starting to shift. Camelot was the first thing printed offset as an original series, which just was incredible for the change in the line work that was done. And was there also a sense of ownership, and not necessarily of you know, physical ownership of the work, but the fact that there were na and the name was being put to the work? Because here, certainly in uh, with these, uh, with uh, 2018, no one knew who was writing and. I think it took time getting So we were ahead on that stage. And this isn't to say that American comics were perfect in the way they worked with the artists uh, at that we are now. Um, but we certainly were lacking what was going on in Britain at that stage, and that was, that was sucking all the talent to, to our side. Um, and it changed American comics, Well, there's a question, uh, because uh, I do want to open up for Q&A uh, at some point, and I do have a, a thing I want to wrap up on. But there was a question that Paul Jenkins, who was going to join us by Skype, uh, did want to put into the conversation, and I'm going to put this to Kira as well. Um, and he says, I know there could be this implication that us Brits write comics better than anyone else, uh, that uh, as a country we're just smarter and better at it. That's clearly not the case, obviously. But why do you think um, we do have uh, such a strong handle on the superhero genre, do you think? Okay. Excentricity. I'm trying to remember who said this, that it strikes me as sort of thing that Warren Ellis said. Did British critics get laid more when they were teenagers? I don't know. Probably couldn't have been less. Yeah. Just kind of the social economic kind of demographic of the comic creator, as in they were often more music people, you know, there were people involved in the culture in that kind of way. And that kind of firm way of nature and influence, as opposed to the more kind of 
hermetically seal nature of the American comic book writer. Yeah. But I don't think that's true anymore. It's just not true. You know, because this all sort of is there and people kind of take many different influences and the background comic writers come down come from now is much, much wider. Sure. So yeah, I think you know, if it was true then, I think it's definitely on some of that, I think. I think any essentialist assumptions are a bit tricky. Yeah. It's certainly not true anymore. That's why I did say that question came from Paul. My generation creators, my peers, often, since I was kind of one of the first generation of internet writers, we got together on one Lennus forum and we, you know, we caused trouble there. There's people like Matt Fraction, Sam Humphreys, Kelly Sue, you know, uh, Brian McAnally, all these people. We, the people I work with were international. You know, my peers and the people I argued fairly with weren't necessarily guys I came down to pub with. Uh, it's definitely more international, internationalist now. I mean, it's something that we went straight to America. We never went to 2008. Yeah. So we could go to America directly because the internet existed. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, in that uh, question then, uh, it does ask for people creating uh, here in the UK. I mean, does it still feel like uh, that Marvel and DC and the uh, American comics market is the end game? Uh, or is there still a sense of them and us? Or is it is it more dem demographic now? Uh, dem uh, democracy. democracy. Well, I, I think it's a contiguous market. Yeah. You know, you have you have Titan publishing a ton of books at, out of England, um, but they use a ton of American talent. In the yes. Yeah. Um, you have American publishers using a ton of talent over here. Ge geography, thanks to the internet, as Kieran was saying, is so much less relevant. It, it's still a great barrier for writers because it's the language barrier. Um, you're not going to have a lot of people in Turkey who are going to be so fluent in English that they're going to be wonderful writers in English. So there probably are a few, but I open my email in the morning for pages, and there's stuff from my artist that I'm working with in Singapore, and my artist that I'm working with in Turkey, and the, my artist that I'm working with in South America, and it's a contiguous market yeah. um, for all of that. And for the ones who are fluent in English, I have the great fortune to be working with Sonny Liu on Dr. Fate. Sonny just did <coughs> fabulous graphic novel, The Art of Charlie Chan Hak Chai, which was first published in Singapore by, um, you can't even call it a small press, a printing press. <coughs> uh, but won the, the literary award, it was the best, best novel in Singapore this year. Uh, but immediately was picked up in America by Pantheon for distribution to the rest of the English language. Uh, is that an American book? Is that an English book? You know, and one other little story that might amuse the group. Um, one of the odder things I've done in the course of my life was talk with the Dewey Decimal people um, who organize theoretically how libraries were organized when they were starting to figure out what to do with graphic novels. And they originally wanted to have graphic novels by country. And they were looking to do it by what they defined as country of origin. And I got a conversation about, for instance, how do you deal with Alan Moore? Because here's Washington. Alan and they, they are God help us Brits. It is fundamentally an American graphic novel. The tropes in it, social theories, yeah. the history that's in it is all based on what's gone on in America and on American comics. Yet on the other hand, you want Alan's work together. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, Alan 
Kevin O'Neill, again, British. Bad time here, but it's a British. It's a British conversation. It's absolutely a British book. You know, you're, he's probing so deeply into British pulp history sure. for what he's doing. You're going to put those in two separate classifications, in two separate sections. This just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. Uh, I'm not quite sure how they ended up doing it. I think they did manage to keep out and stuff together, but God knows what the classification is. Um, they have a library in memory of that, the only library of Congress. <laughs> 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 I, was also, I was just thinking, the thing I always 
always remember he's an agent called Turn. He's a bit of a troll. You know, so it's one of those situations where Alan was probably smiling when he said that as well. Yeah. As in, he, he, you know, that's kind of Alan's introduced performance. And that's that kind of degree of, like, you actually see him live doing his speech like that. Yeah. He, he's been playful as well. So it's one of those situations where you need to. Where's the TEE at the bottom of the. You need to sort of step behind the words of what we're going to sort of make that statement as opposed to taking the statement that's it. You know what I mean? And that's like, that's Alan Moore, you know. Fair enough. It's the start conversation at the end of the Yeah, okay. Um, Tell you what, we have very, si I mean, I actually think we could have carried on talking and I'm kind of glad that we didn't have our contributions uh, from across the pond because we have run out of time. I think we've got time for perhaps one question from an audience if you do want to. Um, back of the room, uh, if that's okay. Yes, sir. Oh, it's not so much a question, just uh, with the new independence, we'll be taking a pastor in a court, uh, and he says, uh, on the theme of the British invasion, he says, it wasn't so much an invasion, but an infiltration, followed by an invitation, followed by an evacuation, and possibly insubordination. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, can you give my fantastic <laughs> <laughs>